good evening, friends and comrades. Hopefully you can see this. Got a bit of tech technical issues at the moment, um, so I'm not too sure if this is coming through. But I have the absolute huge privilege this evening of not only stepping into the shoes of Chris and Lizzie, who can't be with us um, tonight on Resistance TV, but also I have the huge honour of welcoming onto the programme not just a comrade, um, not just one of the most inspirational people in my life in terms of the fighting for the Palestinians, um, but also somebody I'm honoured to be able to call my friend Ronnie Barkin. Now, for those of you who don't know who Ronnie is, um, he is an Israeli dissident, um, a BDS activist, and one of the most unapologetic disruptors of apartheid that I know. Um, so thank you so much, Ronnie, for coming on to the um, Resistance TV this evening and welcome. What I'd like you to do, Ronnie, if it's OK, is just perhaps introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background um, and maybe inform the viewers of the structures and mechanisms that um, exist within Israel that enable the apartheid system to function. Sure. Hi, everyone. Okay. Uh, I love the intro. I really like also the video and everything. Um, so. What I had in mind is to kind of to try to reshuffle uh, everything that is being discussed about Israel-Palestine. But before, I'll just introduce myself. Uh, so I uh, am currently in Palestine, also known as Israel. Uh, but most of the activism I focus on uh, doing abroad, outside, in order to change the situation here. Uh, I grew up here in Israel-Palestine and went through the normal indoctrination. Uh, and, and, uh, but I was lucky enough to be able to come out of it quite easily. Uh, the more they came out of that brainwashing, indoctrination, etc., the rest uh, was very clear because the situation is very clear. It is crystal clear as far as I'm concerned. There's only this veil of, of ignorance that needed to be kind of removed in order to realize what this is actually all about. Uh, and I hope that in this discussion, maybe we'll be able to allow for other people also to kind of to. Uh, you know, to crack through this veil of ignorance in a way and to be able to discuss the real issues. Um, so I'm currently in Palestine um, trying to change the situation from within, but just as important and even more so as far as I'm concerned is going abroad and trying to change the situation there in order to change what is happening here, in order to transform this Zionist race state into a place that respects the rights of all the 20 million sons and daughters of this land. Hi, Ronnie. Sorry, I've, I've lost um, sound at the moment, so I can't actually mm -hmm. hear what's happening within the studio, but hopefully that will come back shortly. Um, so I didn't catch the last bit of what you said, but I, actually you spoke about how you've kind of been resisting the apartheid, both obviously within Israel itself, but also outside of Israel. And I thought um, if you haven't mentioned it already, it might be a really good time perhaps for you to talk a little bit about the trial in Berlin at the Humberbolt, what that was about, um, yeah, perhaps explain a little bit more about that and hopefully I'll get some sounds so I actually know what's going on in the studio at this moment. Yes, so um, while here in Palestine we struggle mostly against the military occupation, but there's much more uh, that needs to be, that we need to deal with here. And I was part of different activist groups like Anarchists Against the Wall and others, mm -hmm. uh, direct action groups. Uh, at some point, obviously, we understood that this is not enough, and uh, we were happy to publicly endorse the Palestinian call for BDS, Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, which I regard as a no-brainer. It is the very bare minimum, it is the very first step that we should take. Every conscientious person around the world definitely 
living here in Palestine in order to support the very the most fundamental rights of the indigenous people of this land. So coming as a privileged, um, as, as one among the privileged group here, um, I am speaking on behalf or, or, or for the rights of those who are underprivileged and, and I get my privileges at their expense. So, so the whole idea is how do we transform this and bring about uh, equality for all. Um, so this is what is happening here. Then I left to do more BDS work outside. Uh, I spent some time in Italy uh, doing that. And then I moved to Germany because I see Germany as the last standing bastion for Zionism. It is the most Zionistic place around. Uh, and, and really there's, it's almost hopeless. It is hopeless in its uh, uh, total and blind support for uh, Zionist crimes against humanity. Now, it so happened that among different actions, we disrupted this uh, former member of Knesset, member of the Israeli parliament, Aliza Lavi, who was instrumental in the um, assault on Gaza, in the massacre um, in 2014. Uh, she was also heading uh, the lobby uh, in, in uh, basically uh, the lobby to, to against BDS and also in order to justify Israeli crimes. So she came uh, on a Hasbara mission, on a Zionist propaganda mission to Germany, to Berlin, and we went there to disrupt her talk. Um, first, um, I stood up and told her um, that, that she's not a legitimate represent representative, that she's a representative of a criminal apartheid state. I was quoting from the UN report, the excellent UN report on apartheid by Professor Stillian Falk, which I was holding in my hand. I was quoting from that. Uh, then eventually I was escorted out. On the way out, I also gave her a copy of that report. Uh, then later on, um, my fellow activist, uh, comrade uh, Stavit Sinai, she's also a former Israeli. She uh, explained that uh, Aliza Lavi has the blood of the children of Gaza on her hands and she was talking to her in Hebrew. She was actually assaulted. She was punched in the yeah. face as she was being taken out. Uh, and finally, Majid Busalama, he's from Gaza, he sat there throughout the talk and eventually during the Q&A, he uh, asked a long question and, and he was also removed from that, from there. For that, all three of us were taken to court uh, under the false accusations of uh, trespassing and assault, and assault, even though this was a public event. I don't really know how this could have been trespassing and assault, even though actually it was Tabith that was assaulted, punched in the face. Uh, the person uh, who punched her, we still don't know her details, even though there are a, a, a document of that, a recording of that was given to the court, but the court was not interested in following up on that. Uh, eventually, the trial is just a trial, yet another trial. Um, Majid and myself were acquitted, and uh, the judge had to somehow still show some support uh, for uh, the Zionist uh, machine. So he uh, found Stavit uh, guilty of something, uh, of inadvertently possibly putting someone uh, at risk. And she received a small fine, which she has no intention on paying. And she would rather sit in jail in instead because she fully uh, stands behind her actions. Yeah, I was just saying, I remember seeing the rather dramatic footage at that time, including um, with yourself actually being dragged away. Yes, and we took that opportunity of being taken to court uh, in order to uh, take Israel to court with us. 
you know, this was a legal arena. We were taken uh, to court for some um, bureaucratic uh, issues, which were also false. Uh, but this was a great opportunity to also bring the whole discussion and our legal uh, basis for, for uh, basically, for disrupting that uh, illegal representative on behalf of Israeli apartheid. Um, so to have this whole discussion in court, uh, we had Professor Stillian Falk uh, supporting us, um, and and we we brought basically we we had a discussion about Israeli apartheid inside the Berlin court, even though this was obviously not the intention of those who were persecuting us. When you were in court and obviously relaying, obviously you brought up apartheid, um, it gave you that really good opportunity, I suppose, to give witness as to what was happening there and why you're kind of forced to take these positions. How do you feel that that was received both within the court itself, but also more widely, perhaps, in, in the society in Berlin? Um, Germany, as I said, is blindly supporting the state of Israel and this has been going on, this is happening throughout the political sphere. There was a wall-to-wall support for the false equation between BDS and anti-Semitism. Not a single member of that parliament, of the German parliament, Bundestag, um, actually um, uh, basically had, uh, there was no voice of dissent. Uh, no one actually uh, had any reservations about that equ equating of BDS with anti-Semitism. Uh, and also among the German public, I would say that there is almost a world war support. Uh, so the situation is very is very difficult in Berlin, and this comes from from the issues of um, of German society, uh, which seems to have learned very little from its uh, dark past. Uh, but in the courthouse, even though the judge was obviously not supportive of our cause, um, we were given uh, room. We were given enough time to make our case. Uh, and that's what we did. Uh, and it is important for me to, to mention, because we will be discussing that as well, that also in Germany, there are Palestinian refugees who have been in exile for the past seven decades. They and their uh, families have been in exile for the past seven decades as a direct consequence of ongoing Israeli apartheid, seven decades of Israeli apartheid. And these people, these refugees who are being persecuted by Israel, um, they should be protected people and they need to be defended by the German state, not to be actually, uh, not, not to, to basically, uh, to have the, right, the rights uh, trampled as um, basically protected people. So, so when we discuss apartheid, it is not only apartheid that Israel implements here in Palestine, Israeli apartheid, also, according to the UN report uh, on the topic, uh, is also also applies to the six million Palestinians who are in forced exile, who are in the shatat in the diaspora. And this is, I think, um, a crucial point to be made to to have uh, that that when we discuss apartheid, first and foremost, we have to uh, to keep in mind those people who are not even allowed to live on their land who are denied the right to come back home for the crime of wrong ethnicity because they were born into the wrong ethnicity. They, they do not have my racial ethnic characteristics uh, uh, and therefore they are not allowed to live on their land. I thought what might be good, I think Gaz, we've got some slides, is that correct? Um, that, um, 
Ronnie will go through and explain a little bit about the structures and the mechanisms of how apartheid, um, the apartheid practices are implemented within Israel, because I think those are really important. Some of the things you've kind of mentioned there about your ethnicity and stuff like that. There's a lot of things that people don't know. Obviously, many people perhaps know now about the nation state law, but a lot of people don't understand how mm -hmm. it operates in terms of the laws, but also in terms of ID. I remember when you came and gave a talk here, Ronnie, that was one of the things that really stood out to me is how actually your IDs that you use um, within Israel and, and Palestine actually state your um, your ethnic backgrounds or um, your religion that some might actually argue um, that's how Judaism obviously used to be viewed. I wondered if perhaps, Gaz, if you're able to bring up the slides and maybe Ronnie, you can maybe sort of explain a little bit about what these different laws and these different structures are, if that's okay. Okay, so maybe we can start with a video, if I, if I may. Um, and and as Natalie mentioned, um, Israel, the Zionist state, the Zionist project of Palestine is a, is a race state, and it was established that way from the get-go. Uh, what we're seeing here is uh, once I got a drone, the very first place that I went to film in Palestine is this place, which is my childhood beach. But this is also uh, the catastrophe of other people who were living here only some decades ago. Uh, this is the mosque of Siniali. Uh, Siniali uh, is, uh, um, was a Palestinian village just uh, north of Tel Aviv on the beach. Uh, and this is the standing remains of that village. Uh, it is still actually an active mosque, but the people who used to uh, visit uh, the mosque and pray are no longer here. Um, and I think that this kind of encapsulates what what we are really dealing with. Um, obviously, there is a harsh, brutal military occupation in the West Bank and Gaza. Obviously, Israel treats uh, Palestinians in the most atrocious ways. But first and foremost, when we discuss Israel-Palestine, we have to talk about those who are absent. And we have to understand that everything that was established here in 1948 comes at their expense. Uh, 530 villages have been uh, demolished and ethnically cleansed. Um, most, uh, I mean, about 700,000 people have been uh, ethnically cleansed from here and, and uh, forced into exile. And to this day, they are denied the right to come back home. Today, they number about uh, 6 million. So, for me, as someone who grew up here, um, it is really important to, to try to kind of to transform, to, to change uh, the narrative that we are being told by those who claim to speak uh, a pro-Palestinian discourse, those who claim to speak about peace and, and human rights, etc. But actually, uh, they are not interested in, in, in challenging that that you just saw, um, the fact that this place was built on top of and at the expense of other people. So first of all, even with the terminology, usually when people ask, uh, you know, I said, I'm here in Palestine, some people may raise an eyebrow, may, they may think that, oh, this is kind of a radical approach saying that I'm in Palestine, but I am in Palestine. Palestine and Israel are the exact same spot of land. If you don't think that way, then this is why we're having this talk. If you don't think that Israel and Palestine are the exact same spot of land, if you think that there is somehow an Israel and Palestine, which are two separate entities, then that means that Zionist propaganda has done its 
you know, has been extremely successful in convincing you of that. Um, if you think that the issue is that occupation of 1967, what they call 50 some years of occupation, uh, while disregarding the actual occupation and apartheid and colonialism and ethnic cleansing that has been going on since the very foundation of the state of Israel, then Zionist propaganda has been very successful in driving this false narrative. If you think that there is an iota of democracy in Israel, okay, even though it was established on the exact opposite of democratic values like equality, the rights of minorities, multiculturalism, and so on. If you think that there is even a semblance of democracy, then, you know, whenever they use terms like Israeli democracy, uh, and if you read this term Israeli democracy and you're not, and you don't burst out laughing, that means that Israeli propaganda has uh, succeeded. If you read something about the Jewish state uh, and that doesn't bother you, or you think that there is some legitimacy in that term, then Israeli propaganda has been very successful and on and on. If you hear about the Israeli left, which doesn't exist and never ever existed, but you know, but, but there is an entire newspaper, Harvard's newspaper, which is the leading tool of Zionist propaganda, which aims to convince you that there is some sort of Zionism that is uh, peace-seeking and, and the concern about human rights, etc. cetera, uh, while it is just as much, uh, uh, basically, it is just as much in, uh, interested in maintaining that supremacist state. If you think that there is such a form of Israeli left that is not anti-Zionist, then Zionist propaganda has been very successful. So, so this is what I would kind of like to change here. And this is why I wanted to start with the video, which also is kind of, you know, um, is close to my heart, uh, because this was my childhood. This is where I spent my time. Hope sometimes instead of going to the to school, I would go there to the beach and even, you know, I don't know, I just spent nights and days there. Um, but we also have to remember that, you know, my, my childhood uh, memories are also the memories of destruction uh, and ethnic cleansing of others. So, so this is where I want to start, actually. Uh, if we can go to the first slide. Uh, which is an excellent infographics by Visualizing Palestine. Um, this kind of basically encapsulates everything that we are talking about. There are two groups here. One is of the privileged, the other is of the un underprivileged. And the privileged group that I belong to are at the top and they have all the rights. They have both civil rights and national, what's called national rights in Israel and everything Zionist apartheid, Israeli apartheid, uh, was established in 1948, the same time as uh, South African apartheid. But unlike the situation in South Africa, Israeli apartheid uh, kind of created, a, let's say, a more sophisticated form of apartheid where it can create this facade of liberalism and even democracy, while at the same time maintaining the very same practices and the very same uh, supremacist uh, thinking and, pra and practice uh, as in South Africa. So for that purpose, they differentiate between citizenship and nationality. So I said that I have, there are citizen, citizen rights, but also national rights. This is kind of the legal, legalistic discourse in which Israel 
is able to afford certain rights to the people who are living here, and this falls under citizenship rights, but national rights are reserved for only the privileged group that I belong to. And that comes obviously, and, and there are no national rights to the others. And this was established already, uh, in, this was legislated in the Israeli law book since the very foundation of the state of Israel. The very first laws are explicitly racist. Three laws actually have the term Jewish in them. They don't mean Jewish by religion, they mean Jewish by ethnicity or whatever you want to call it. Um, and this differentiates between the, those who are among the privileged group, those who have Jewish nationality, according to the state, deserve certain rights, like the right of return, which is extremely important. Uh, and then, since then, they've legislated well over 50 laws that discriminate based on this criteria of Jewish nationality. So, so they are implicitly racist because they uh, basically they say, if you are eligible under the law of return, you're also uh, eligible uh, to other things. And this is how the legal foundation of the state uh, was created. Uh, so, Natalie, you mentioned, uh, for example, the Jewish nation uh, something law. Uh, which was legislated, legislated a few years ago. Yes, it is a horrible racist law. It is uh, uh, explicitly so, but this changes nothing in the law book. Everything already existed since the very foundation of the state of Israel. So the fact that people are talking about that new Jewish nation state law is important, but the fact that they are not acknowledging that it has been so all along, that is an issue. And that again shows us how we haven't been discussing the real issues up until you know, they became more explicit. So going back to the infographic, at the top, there's the privileged group. Uh, and they live on most part of the land, basically, uh, less so in uh, some parts of the West Bank, um, area A of the West Bank. Um, and they have voting rights, and they have both civil rights and national rights. The other groups, there are four domains uh, of those Palestinians uh, indigenous people to this land uh, who have different sets of rights or, or, or rights or lesser rights depending on um, on their geography and also depending on their ethnicity. So we have those who are uh, residents but not citizens. Those um, uh, sorry sorry first uh, the second layer is uh, those who are Israeli citizens. They are citizens, but they are uh, second-class citizens by law. Um, basically, Israel claims that they have the same rights as I do, but this is uh, obviously not the case. Actually, I would argue that, uh, I mean, they have civil rights, but they don't have what we call national rights. And they can even participate in the parliament, unlike in South African apartheid. They can participate in the Zionist apartheid parliament, but their vote means absolutely nothing. Um, I don't know if we have that slide, but basically that excellent UN report on Israeli apartheid uh, takes that as an example. There is a law, um, uh, the Knesset um, basic law, the Knesset article uh, 3a says that um, if um, a, a party, a political party, and also a candidate for uh, the Knesset cannot even run for elections, if they do not acknowledge Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. Now, there is no such thing as Jewish and democratic. It's not even a logical term, but this is a euphemism to basically a supremacist and apartheid. And, and the law says that you cannot even run for elections uh, if you basically uh, challenge that very supremacist character 
of the state. So yes, they can participate in the parliament, but that is conditioned on actually not challenging the very supremacist character of the state. And in the UN report on apartheid, uh, Professor Stilley and Falk actually take that as an example, and they say that uh, this uh, prohibition from challenging uh, racial domination is actually akin to affording slaves the right to vote, but not in order to abolish slavery. So yes, Palestinians in, in what is regarded as Israel um, can vote to the parliament, they can participate in the parliament, they can also participate in other um, practices uh, of the institution, but uh, by law they are denied from actually transforming this place into a democracy. This is the second layer, the, the uh, sorry, the, the, those who are citizens, but second class citizens. And then you have residents of East Jerusalem. Why are there residents of East Jerusalem? Because uh, East Jerusalem is part of the West Bank, but Israel, when it annexed the West Bank, or sorry, when it occupied the West Bank, uh, it had also annexed East Jerusalem and separated it from the West Bank because they wanted the territory. They just didn't want uh, to afford the people there the same rights as uh, other Israeli citizens, so they created a new category, which are residents, what they call permanent residents. Uh, they are not at all permanent. Actually, their situation is very precarious. For example, uh, people in East in occupied Jerusalem, um, they can lose the right uh, to live there very easily. For example, if they go to study abroad, study in the UK, and they don't go back for a few years, they can lose the right to ever go back home. Uh, if they go, if they marry uh, a partner in uh, the West Bank and they go to live in Ramallah, which is only 15 minutes away from Jerusalem, uh, because their partner would not be able to live with them in Jerusalem, so they would have to uh, to go and live in Ramallah, they may be able to see their house, but if they have stayed in Ramallah for too long, they, they again may lose the right to go back home. So they may, may be able to see their house, but denied the right to go back there. Uh, and then you have the people who are under harsh and brutal military occupation in the West Bank and Gaza. The situation there is beyond description, especially when we talk about Gaza. But we also have to remember that it is not only about military occupation, not only about denying people's every right, including the right to life in many cases. It is also about, for example, in the case of Gaza, denying them the right to go back home. So 70% of Palestinians in Gaza are uh, refugees. Uh, and as you all know, there was the March of Return a few years ago, where Palestinians demanded not only the end of that horrible siege of Gaza, but also their right to go back home, home within what is regarded as Israel proper. But unfortunately, in the media and also among poor Palestinian groups, we heard that this March of Return is against the occupation and the siege. It was not. It was about their right to come back home, home here. Okay, in Palestine. And finally, and most importantly, are those who are not even on that on living on this land. Why? Because they were expelled, they and their parents and great parents were expelled from here since 48, and then there were also later expulsions, and to this day they are denied the right to come back home, as I said, for the crime of wrong ethnicity, because they have the wrong ethnicity. All of these people that you see on the left, uh, they account for about 20 million people, 7 million among the privileged group that I belong to, and the rest, about 12 million or so, Palestinians. When we talk about Israeli democracy, this is the only number that we have to discuss. And obviously, Israel cannot be regarded as a democracy in any way, shape, or form. Um, 
it, it, it affords rights specifically according to one's uh, uh, racial ethnic characteristics. And obviously there's much that can be said about that, but I think that this kind of proves the point. Uh, if we can go to this next slide, slide two, this is also from Visualizing Palestine, and I have great issues with that. Visualizing Palestine is an excellent uh, organization, which is uh, creating wonderful infographics like the one you saw before. This, however, is a very, very misleading infographic, and this is part of their collaboration with the result of their collaboration with Human Rights Watch, which speaks a very, 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 very different discourse. This uh, slide shows you as if the situation is 50-50 between Palestinians and the privileged group, the ones that are regarded here as Jewish Israelis, I would say ethnic Jewish Israelis, because it's not about religion, it's about ethnicity. Um, this infographics is partly correct, but it forgets the most important element in the story, which are the six million who are in forced exile. So uh, this, this infographic and, and the whole report by Human Rights Watch, which is a terrible report, also a report about Israeli apartheid, um, unlike the UN report, uh, it only deals with what is happening here on this land. And it purposely negates and, and basically erases off the face of the earth six million people who are denied the right to come back home. So I totally reject that type of discourse. And I showed this to you, uh, and, and I, I'm actually I'm uh, upset about visualizing Palestine and, and participating in that. I don't believe I don't think that this was done out of ill will, but uh, I would ask them to reconsider. But but this type of discourse is something that we definitely have to challenge. Unlike the previous slide, this slide uh, implies uh, something very different. Uh, it is still horrible. The situation is still horrible, and I don't think I have to explain much about it. But the most important part, the one that we, the part that we started with, that mosque on the beach that is still awaiting, uh, you know, its its uh, its people, is totally lost from from the Human Rights Watch report and also from B'Tselem, which is actually a Zionist organization, which is kind of making uh, strides in the right direction, but it is still uh, not there. Also uh, speaking about uh, all kinds of uh, false, um, uh, using false terms like Jewish supremacy, for example, uh, which I have great issues with. Um, so, so we should really be careful about uh, the terminology and the discourse that we're using. If we're talking about 20 million people, all the sons and daughters of the land, that's fine. If we're talking about less than that, first of all, I would ask what happened to the others? Where are we um, disregarding the others? If we're talking about the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, that is perfectly fine. But if we are only talking about the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, and forgetting about the Nakba and forgetting about the ethnic cleansing, forgetting about the right of return. Again, I would have issues with that and so on. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at Human Rights Watch, which obviously has been welcomed by a lot of people because it's talking about how Israel has um, reached a threshold of apartheid. But it's interesting how you talk about how they don't refer to obviously the refugees, those who are victims of the Nakba, who still don't have the right um, to return home. But it seems to be a much bigger issue um, in, I suppose, you know, in terms of the international community in general, this 
battle to control the narrative. You know, um, it's become so incredibly difficult to talk about um, Palestine. And it seems that there's um, a greater willingness to make compromises in order to get any message out about Palestinian suffering and their situation um, at all. So I think this is a problem that many human rights groups are facing. I mean, obviously, I don't think it's been released yet. We've been waiting for a while for Amnesty to release their own report about um, Israeli apartheid. And I don't think that that has come out as yet. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure because I have been keeping an eye out for it. So it's really interesting that you talk about the UN report, which obviously was was taken down, although the, uh, the report itself wasn't questioned because obviously it was a scientific report. Um, but I think... Um, um, in terms of Human Rights Watch and just actually the general discussion, you can see there really is a battle, not just in terms of controlling the narrative, but for Israel, it really is about controlling the demography. Um, mm -hmm. This seems that a lot of human rights groups or NGOs, perhaps because of lack of courage or concerns, I don't know about whether they might lose funding, um, seem to buy into that, you know, about that sort of demography that you forget all these other Palestinians, these millions of Palestinians who were not able to return home, whilst at the, on the same token, you've got people. In fact, I don't know if you read recently, there was um, an article that talked about, I don't know if it was an electronic intifada, maybe, um, that talked about South Africans converting to Judaism and being able to make Aliyah, which, which is beyond belief, really. And of course, these ones have extremely right-wing views. And I guess it's because apartheid ended in, in one way there. So they seek apartheid in another country. So what are your thoughts about that, um, Ronnie? That reminds me of how Israel was very welcoming to fascists post-World War II. Actually, the one who founded the um, the Shayetet 13, the, the, the one, the, the naval uh, military unit that uh, assaulted, that, that basically assaulted the Mavi Marmara, the boat to Gaza, uh, the one who founded that was uh, uh, a proper fascist from the Decimamas, um, and he was working with, under Mussolini. Anyway, but, but uh, and there's, there's a book about that, a fascist in, the, in Israel, anyway. But, but putting that aside, you mentioned that Israel reached some threshold of uh, of uh, of apartheid. No, it hasn't. I, 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 I just feel like I didn't say that, Ronnie. The Human Rights Watch. <laughs> exactly. That's I, why I, I said it is terrible. Convinced. It is a terrible, terrible report. It's a horrible report. Um, uh, it hasn't reached the, thresh the threshold of apartheid. It was never anything other than apartheid. Mm -hmm. The thinking as if apartheid. Uh, first of all, can only exist if uh, the privileged group is not the majority, or as if uh, it is only limited in geography to the West Bank and Gaza or anything like that, that means that they haven't understood a thing about what is happening here. The Zionist state, the Zionist project in Palestine is all about creating not only, it is not only a colonialist project and that is there to to basically to take over the land and usurp the you know the, the resources of the land etc not even only about driving away the people the indigenous people from the land it is also in its very nature it is about exclusivity it is for us and only for us and anyone who doesn't belong to us to the privileged group doesn't belong here at all at best we're willing to tolerate that person or that group uh, under very strict conditions. So, and this is how the Zionist race state was founded. It is a race state. It is founded on white supremacy, not, not Jewish supremacy as B'Tselem would like to, to call it, uh, which is 
an absolute lie and very uh, problematic terminology. First of all, Judaism has precisely nothing to do with Zionism. Zionism for religious Jews, Zionism is the greatest threat to Judaism, and we can talk about that in, in a bit. Other than that, Zionism is all about white supremacy. And we have to remember that whiteness is a construct. It is not solely about yeah. skin color. The majority of Zionists today here in Palestine, ethnic Jews, um, I call it ethnic Jews because I have to use some terminology. It's not a proper term. This is the term I use because I don't want to say that they are Jewish you know, by, uh, by religion, okay? So I will call them ethnic Jews. This is uh, uh, the way that the state treats them. So I also use that term uh, the way that the state regards them. The majority of ethnic Jews are actually not Ashkenazi. They're not regarded as white. They're from Middle Eastern countries. And yet, so they are Arab Jews. Before Zionism, you had Jews living all over the world, including in Arab countries, uh, including Maimonides, the greatest scholar, greatest Jewish scholar of all times, wrote Morena Bukhim and other books in Arabic, speaking Arabic, etc. He wrote the the, 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 the religious scholarly work in Arabic, okay? And he was living, obviously, uh, as an Arab. So, so you had Arab Jews coming to the Zionist race state, uh, and they were told to forget their past, not to listen to Uncle Sum and the other uh, Arabic singers, not to dress in their uh, traditional clothing, etc., and to basically to forget about their Arab identity. Today, which are the majority, Arab Jews are the majority of uh, Israelis, ethnic Jews. Uh, if I would tell some, most of them uh, that, you know, but I would tell someone that you're an Arab, they will be very upset with me. They will say, no, I'm not an Arab, I'm Jewish. They use the term Jewish in the sense of white supremacy, in the sense, it, it has nothing to do with, with their religion. It has to do with their racial identification they they regard they themselves being jewish as being superior to others just like you know isis claims to be muslim and the kkk claims to be christian zionists claim to be jewish but you wouldn't regard the kkk as a christian supremacist group you would call it what it is and yeah. white supremacist group and the exact same thing applies to Zionism, to all of Zionism, to every single Zionist out there. Every single Zionist is a white supremacist, with no exception, especially those writing for Haaretz newspaper. Sorry, Rani, I was going to just say thank you for explaining that, because it's one that comes up quite often. And actually, I've used the words because of you, actually, white supremacy and obviously also um, the uh, Jewish American anti-Zionist Yoav Litvin uses the same and talks mm -hmm. about the importance of using the terminology of white supremacy and not Jewish supremacy for the reasons you've explained. So thank you for doing that, because it's really important that we begin to use that terminology more widely. Yes, thank you for mentioning it, and I, and here's a big shout out to Yoav Litvin, and there is a discussion between him and Tony Greenstein, which most uh, viewers are familiar with, and Tony only recently published in his blog um, something about, he, uh, there was a discussion between Yoav and Tony about whether this is Jewish supremacy or, or white supremacy, initially uh, Tony Greenstein said no, this is Clearly not white supremacy, it's Jewish supremacy. Now he changed his tune a little bit, but still he's not only there. I would urge Tony to take the next step. Uh, 
and and basically when we talk about white supremacy you can also call it racial ethnic supremacy if you like if you don't want to use the term white because it may be misleading for some people but uh, as i mentioned whiteness is a construct okay. um when we talk about white supremacy i said that pretty much everyone writing for Harvard is a white supremacist because they're zionist and uh, i'll give you an example of someone who is regarded as a raving leftist in israel professor zev sternhal who some pro-palestinians are we may be familiar with he's regarded as a uh, no longer with us, he was uh, uh, regarded as an anti-fascist uh, scholar. Uh, but I see him as the face of white supremacy. Um, when I challenged him in a talk uh, at the Tel Aviv University, which is built on top of the remains of uh, Shachmunis, the village of Shachmunis, obviously no one acknowledges that. Um, I challenged him on many things and we don't have time to go into all of it, but I'd like to give you his response when I asked about um, the rights of those who, uh, you know, the Palestinians who should return or, or who yearn to come back home. Uh, and he said this, and I quote, to the 400 destroyed villages, or whatever the number is, they cannot return. Um, according to him, their return to their lands would be putting an end to the existence of the state of Israel. I'm just giving you kind of the highlight. Here. You can see it on the video. I can I can share the video with the viewers where I challenge him about this. Afterwards, he even says that those who are internal refugees, those who are uh, forbidden to go from living on their land, but they are still Israeli citizens, even they cannot return to their original homes, even though they are Israeli citizens. And that comes from someone who is regarded as a raving leftist. He was actually attacked by the far right. He lost hearing in one ear because uh, they planted some uh, bomb in his house. And, and you know, he was, he was, he's regarded as, as very much of a leftist and uh, very much uh, uh, threatened by the right wing in Israel. And still, these are the views of this, you know, extreme leftist, yet a Zionist. So this is the essence of Zionism. And he talks about the rights of Palestinians. He says we should do everything in our power. We should uh, we should allow them to have wonderful lives. We should support them financially and otherwise. But those who have been expelled from here in 1948 should remain outside, and we should help them in any in every other way, financially and otherwise. This is as far as Zionist liberalism and human rights go, with no exception. Um, and that's simply not enough. So what I offer uh, um, to counter that is actually the demand for equality, or more precisely, the demand for equality and return. When de we demand equality and return, we basically abolish everything that uh, the Zionist state is all about. Simply by that, the very simple demand for equality and return. Let's forget about all the other uh, ter terms that we have been using until now. Do people think that there should be equality in, on this land? In this land, do people think that those who have been forcefully expelled and still denied the right to come back home are allowed to come back home? If they do, they would necessarily be anti-Zionist. If they don't, I would seriously ask why.
Absolutely. And it's important, actually, for people always to remember that um, this is their absolute right under international law. It's still recognised that the uh, refugees uh, still have the right of return. This so often gets forgotten. But I think that's why it's important, really, um, to make the distinction between Judaism and Zionism. And mm -hmm. I think so often this, which is why you see this attempt by the uh, by the Israel lobby, but also its supporters, mm -hmm. those obviously who benefit the even the international community, which of course benefits um, from the continued um, uh, apartheid states, because obviously it aligns with their own interests. But this drive to conflate this Zionism and Judaism, which of course is very dangerous, but also um, dismisses the the rich heritage that Jews have of standing, of course, with the oppressed rather than the oppressor. So I think, thank you, you made that sort of very, very clear about what Zionism is, what it means. Um, and it's so important to continue with that because obviously this is what's being used. I don't know if you know recently of what's happened to Professor David Miller, but you've also got, um, I think it's Jane Jackman at Glasgow University, David Miller at Bristol I'm University. Sorry, Keep it up, keep up the struggle. Yeah, we'll, we continue to do the best that we can. It's good actually to highlight sort of David Miller because there is a GoFundMe at the moment that's going to challenge that, not just in terms of trying to get his job back, which is absolutely uh, right to do so because um, they ignored, obviously, there was a QC um, that uh, investigated it and basically... Um, said that he he wasn't guilty of any of the things that the Israel lobby had claimed, um, which was completely ignored by Bristol uh, University. Yeah. Um, but there is that GoFundMe, but alongside that, they want to kind of raise awareness about what the Israel lobby is and the difference between Zionism and Judaism. Um, so what kinds of, I'm just sort of mindful of time, um, Ronnie, what do you think that we should be doing? So obviously based um, in the UK and the British Isles, where do you think we should be putting our energy in terms of the struggle, um, also perhaps in resisting the witch hunt? What, do you want to share a little bit more with us about the language that we should be using and perhaps what you would see as the targets? I know that obviously you got involved in Palestine action, one of the actions perhaps, although brief though it might have been, it might be good to talk a little bit about that as well. Yes, definitely. <laughs> shout out to, big shout out to Palestine action. and. Uh, yeah, I'd love to to talk a little bit more about that. But uh, since we were touching about the distinction between Judaism and Zionism, and this could be a, a whole talk in itself, let's just bring up another slide quickly, slide five, if I may. Um, and I put this, uh, you know, I wrote down quickly the, the differences between Judaism and Zionism. Um, now, you see, Judaism is a religion. Zionism is a supremacist, a racist, nationalistic ideology. Now, in Judaism, uh, anyone may convert into Judaism. Not necessarily recommended, but anyone may, con may convert. It is inclusive. It is theocentric. Uh, obviously, it is all about, um, and, you know, God is at the center, it, and it is about uh, the religion. Uh, if the state has any role in Judaism, it is in order to uh, serve uh, the religion, to be subordinate to the religion. Uh, and anyone who practices the mitzvot, the 613 um, whatever uh, uh, rules, uh, is regarded as a Jew. 
And that is pre pretty much it. Actually, it is inclusive to the extent that anyone who converts, and it is quite a long pro process, but it is still possible, anyone who converts is immediately regarded as uh, the moment that they convert, they are regarded full members of the Jewish people. This is according to the religion. <laughs> the exact opposite applies to Zionism. Zionism is on the left here of the slide. It is primarily ethnocentric. It is not about uh, God. It is about ethnicity and, and uh, uh, racial ethnic characteristics. It is. It revolves around nationalism and ultranationalism. If religion has any role, it is uh, in order to serve the state. Uh, it is the most important part about Zionism is that it is exclusive. No one who doesn't belong to us will ever belong to us. Um, and, and I will even refer to the words of uh, Lucien Wolf, who was the leader of, uh, leader of the Jewish community in London, uh, when he was writing to Baron de Rothschild, and um, he wrote about how it is bad enough when uh, the anti-Semites are saying that uh, Jews have no place in this land, but it is even war. It is even worse when Zionists come to him and say the same thing that we Jews uh, cannot fit in this land, in this society, and therefore we deserve uh, to. We need to go elsewhere and uh, live as separate uh, group in another place. So this exclusive nature is uh, very much uh, the core of Zionism. So again, this distinction between Zionism and Judaism, I would even say that any conflation whatsoever between the two, any conflation between Zionism and Judaism is in itself anti-Semitic. And this is pretty much what most uh, Israeli representatives are saying. They're saying that if you are critical of that criminal apartheid Zionist state, the Zionist race state, you must also be anti-Semitic, somehow anti-Jewish. The logic of that statement also says the exact opposite. It also says that if you are Jewish in a broad sense, because of religion or otherwise, you must also be, because of your Jewishness, also supportive of that uh, criminal apartheid race state. It's like saying all Muslims are terrorists. It's like saying, you know, all uh, all Christians are KKK. This is this is the value of saying that if you're critical of uh, the Zionist race state, if you're critical of uh, Israeli apartheid, you are somehow anti-Jewish. Th and this is how we should regard it. Now, the moment that we take an apologetic tone, uh, that is counterproductive. And unfortunately, as much as I have great respect for uh, Jeremy Corbyn and, and, and uh, you know, and uh, uh, I would have loved to see him, uh, uh, you know, taking uh, basically, you know, uh, receiving more uh, support. Um, the moment that he took the apologetic uh, tone, basically he dug his own. Uh, okay, great. Uh, and, and because there is, we have to negate this false conflation in its totality. There is no connection between Zionism and Judaism, both from the religious aspect, of course. I have uh, uh, Jewish religious friends uh, who are ultra-Orthodox, and for them, you see, I'm anti-Zionist because I'm humanist, like you. But yeah. they are anti-Zionist because they are Jewish. And Zionism is the greatest, the greatest threat to their Judaism. 
when we talk about how Zionism is exclusive while uh, Judaism is inclusive, you have to think about all of the different quirky situations, and we don't have time to go into all of these, but there's an excellent book about it called The Unjewish State by Akiva Ohl. Um, but, uh, and it is free for download. Uh, but, but when we talk about these differentiations between Zionism and Judaism, you have to remember that anyone may convert to Judaism, including Palestinians. Anyone may convert to Judaism mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. The moment they convert, they become full-fledged members of the Jewish people. If they try to go to Israel under the law of return, because they would say, hey, I'm Jewish, I want to go back home to, my, to the homeland, uh, they will be told, uh, no, you're not the right kind of Jew because we only accept that state-sanctioned form of Judaism. Again, it is not because they care about the religion. They care about that. They care about the ability to control based on racial ethnic characteristics. You're actually seeing something very similar at the moment in the Labour Party, um, Ronnie, where basically you have the wrong kind of Jew, where Jews who are mm -hmm. either none or anti-Zionist are finding themselves disproportionately targeted. They did, um, somebody did some statistics, and it was saying in the Labour Party now under Keir Starmer, you are five times more likely to be suspended or expelled from Labour Party if you're Jewish, if you're a member of mm -hmm. Jewish Voice for Labour 18 times, and if you're a member of their um, committee, I think it's something like 253 times. So you've actually got that replicated within the Labour Party itself under the banner of trying to fight anti-Semitism, which again shows how Zionism really is an affront to Judaism. Um, yeah. And also, I suppose, why if we go back and think about what Zionism is, it's why so many other white supremacists take up Zionism as a political ideology. It's, a, it's an example of an ethnostate, you know, in, in translate what Zionism is in translate um, translated into reality in, in Palestine. Um, it's what they want to see, you know, whether it's Richard Spencer or Katie Hopkins or or Tommy Robinson. And you see this. This is why the EDL march with Israeli flags. But also, of course, this is why they try and make that conflation, because they know there is no argument. If we separate them, they immediately lose the argument, which is why they try and muddy the waters, of course. Yes, and before uh, I say a few words about Palestine action, I'm very happy that you mentioned that. And if yeah, please, you can have slide, yeah. slide number six quickly, uh, Golda Meir, former uh, prime minister of Israel, uh, the viewers can read that. Basically, she refers to, uh, this was said in a very long discussion in the Israeli parliament, uh, and this revolves around mixed marriages, Jews marrying non-Jews in Israel. You should know that there's only uh, religious weddings uh, here in this land, Not again, not because they care about religion, but because this is one way to make sure that uh, people do not uh, have mixed marriages. So marriage and divorce is uh, controlled by the religious institutions. This is also why Israel is dependent on having Sharia laws. There are 11 Sharia courts here for marriage and divorce because they must have Sharia courts like uh, uh, Episcopalian, whatever, like Christian courts, like, uh, uh, like, like Jewish courts. Uh, so um, what Golda Meir is saying is she talks about mixed marriages. She compares it to the Holocaust. She says one heavy calamity already hit us. And now we are basically on the cusp of another calamity or another catastrophe because the numbers of mixed marriages are increasing. And for me, Golda Meir, even though she was not religious, she had nothing to do with Jewish religion, but she was very much of a white supremacist. She said, for me, 
uh, the issue of mixed marriages, Jews marrying non-Jews here in this land, is a matter of state security and linked to it. So this is the view of Zionism, and she was regarded as a leftist, by the, by the way. Now, what can we do in like a few minutes? Um, yeah, we've I only was... got a minute left, Ronnie, so just okay. to highlight so, that. So, so, so a big thank you and a big shout out to Palestine Action for doing an amazing job. I know that they were just at Altam factory where I was arrested uh, just a few months ago. I'm still waiting to, to, uh, to go back to see the, the police station in uh, the UK. Uh, because we were arrested for basically trying to scale uh, the Oldham factory where they are producing uh, the means of uh, mass destruction, the, the, the weapons that are being used on the people of Palestine, on the people of Gaza. And I think that this type of waking up from, you know, from us, the people, because the politicians are not doing what they are obligated to do by law. So it is up to us, the people. And by speaking up and standing up against these crimes and doing this really on, on a uh, basically in an unapologetic way, just like I said before, uh, and in insisting, demanding to hold to account those who are the perpetrators, those who are the criminals, uh, I think that we are making, uh, uh, really, we are having great success and we are able to do two things. We are able to change the discourse and we are able to basically to galvanize more people to demand eventually from their politicians to do the right thing. Yeah. And these are the two things that we have to focus on, changing the discourse and applying enough pressure on the ones at the top to actually change things. Fantastic. We've just gone over time, Ronnie, so I need to stop you there. Um, yeah, you've made some really good points tonight. It's been amazing to have you on the show. So thank you so much. You're such a fine example for us to follow. And actually really reiterated, you know, the need for us to double down, to not cower down, um, cower to the Israel lobby and to recognise um, that what we're actually opposing is a form of white supremacy. And I think it's really important that we take that to heart. Um, I know we're going to have you back on the show, hopefully in a few weeks time. Um, but I just want to say thank you to all our friends and comrades watching this evening. I apologise for some of the technical issues at times. Like I said, technology doesn't seem to be my friend sometimes, but thank you for bearing with us. Um, hopefully we'll see you next week. Otherwise, look after yourselves, stay safe and sending you all solidarity. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.